Welcome to another episode of Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Sam Shaheen, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we have part two in our What You're Wearing miniseries, and it's all about wool. Wool goes way beyond the old itchy sweaters you used to get from your grandma or fancy-looking Armani suits. Thanks to textile innovations, wool is used in some of the most comfortable and highest-performing base layers on the market. So today, I'm talking with Icebreaker's Josh Vaughn. Josh walks us through how exactly we go from sheep grazing in the southern Alps of New Zealand to the clothes in your closet. We also cover wool's environmental impact, Icebreaker's transparency initiative, and Josh gives some amazingly in-depth answers to my questions about where wool's unique properties come from. All right, let's get to it. Josh, how are you doing today? Yeah, pretty good. It's a Monday morning, so as well can uh, be expected, but had an awesome weekend, so looking forward to getting stuck into the week. Oh, nice. You getting anything fun? Yeah, we uh, got away with the family and uh, headed up to the Whistler area where they did a slow food cycle. So they closed off some of the roads in Pemberton and a lot of the organic producers and even better breweries had their their wares on the side of the road and you just cycled from place to place. So it was a lot of fun. That sounds rad. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was good. Cool. Um, Well, today we're here to talk about wool. So to start off, I think let's just hear a little bit about your background and your current role at Icebreaker. Yeah, sure. So um, I've been with Icebreaker coming up uh, eight years, and that was my first journey into uh, wool as such, working for the Icebreaker brand. But as soon as I started working for them, it's something that that, that really hit home. I've always um, been involved in the outdoors. I grew up in the Lake District in the UK, uh, in a national park, so fully across the, the clothing that was available, but but I'd never really tried wool. I'd always uh, worn uh, Polypro for my base layers and then working for Icebreaker. I tried it out before the interview and uh, I became a convert. And ever since then, uh, as part of my role, I've, I've tried to find out more and more about this awesome fabric and fiber and and what it has to offer. So in my time at Icebreaker, I've held various roles across the business. Um, First of all, in the Australian market for just over five years and then moved to North America uh, around two and a half years ago where I'm currently heading up um, wholesale sales for for the North American market. Cool. So um, today we really want to dive into wool as a textile fiber and kind of geek out a little bit and i think the natural place to start is with the animals where wool comes from can we talk a little bit about that maybe some specific species of sheep that you guys are using um maybe how the animals are raised what sort of properties we look for in in an animal to, to make you know a high quality textile yeah no problem so um we use wool from merino sheep. The merino are an ancient breed uh, that originally come from Spain. Uh, they really thrive in high alpine environments where temperature ranges can can really fluctuate. With Icebreaker being a, a New Zealand company and New Zealand being one of the premier producers of, of merino wool um, it was kind of a, a match made in heaven for our for our founder and he first tried merino wool um, over 25 years ago and he was doing a trip around the, the South Island in in New Zealand and um, discovered a farmer who was using the fabrics in uh, garments that he'd not seen before. So super fine uh, next to skin thermal garments. And and that's where our sourcing comes from today. So a little bit about where we get our wool from. The majority of our wool is sourced from the Southern Alps of New Zealand. Last year we worked with 72 um, individual growers on contracts to source um, the merino wool that we that we put into our clothing. Um, years ago, Icebreaker were the first company uh, to sign direct contracts with these wool growers, and it was for the main purpose of securing the supply of really good quality 
merino wool because the quality of the the finished garment is based on the the quality of the raw fiber that you put into it so by having direct contracts with uh, the growers it enables us to source the wool that we require for our specific garments um, what do we look at when we're looking for merino wool the first thing um, is the the micron and that's really the the width or how fine uh, the fiber is Specifically for Icebreaker, we'll vary our micron between uh, 17 micron up to 22, depending on the, the type of garment we're, we're going to use it for. But for our most well-known products, which is probably our base layers and our T-shirts, we work towards a, an 18.5 micron wool. Um, other things we look at, things like fiber length, uh, fiber strength. Uh, the color of, of the wool, uh, the type of crimp that it's gone, uh, got uh, on the wool itself. We also look for, for various flaws within the fiber. Um, the merino wool fiber itself tells a story. So similar as uh, when you look at um, a tree trunk as a, as a tree's been removed, the rings on the tree will, will demonstrate good growth years, poor growth years. The merino wool fiber itself will, will tell the story of what the sheep's been through that season. And if it's had any adversity, such as a really dry um, summer or a really early snowfall where it couldn't get food, that will be reflected in the wool fiber itself. So we're, our wool class has really look uh, for those fibers which have uh, minimal flaws in them to guarantee the consistency and uh, the strength of those fibers. Sorry, I just want to interject real fast because that's, that's fascinating. So when the sheep or the animal goes under some sort of hardship, that's reflected in a, like a weak spot in, in the fiber, essentially? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so a really good example is with the environment that the sheep are in, um, quite often they could get unexpected s snowfall, which means uh, the food supply can um, can be hard to come by until they bring the sheep down, sheep down from the, the higher pastures. So um, without that um, instant nutrition, the the sheep really focuses on then surviving. Um, so the wool growing becomes secondary to its survival. So it can be indicated as a weak spot uh, within that fiber. And if you have a weak spot within that fiber, you can knit, uh, put that into a yarn, knit it into a fabric, but the weak spot in the fiber will still be inherent and that can actually create holding in the garments. So that's why all merino wool garments aren't equal. It all depends on the raw fiber that you that you put in there. So we were talking about where it comes from and, and, and the growers that, that we work with. Um, and I want to dig in a little bit more about, about the contracts that, that we have with these growers. Like I said, we had uh, 72 growers under, under contract last year. Um, we were the first to come in with three-year contracts. More recently, we've gone down um, a longer-term supply uh, contract use of 10 years with um, 55 individual growers, really trying to guarantee the long-term supply of fiber uh, for icebreaker. Merino wool is being used more and more, particularly in technical fabrics, both in the outdoor space, the run space, but also in high fashion fabrics as well. And there's only a finite supply of this fiber. So the longer term contracts we can have with these growers, um, we guarantee the supply of our fiber, but we also guarantee those growers income. They know how many head of sheep they've got, how many ton of fiber they're going to uh, produce, and therefore it allows them to plan for the long term future um, of their business. Business. So once you have uh, the sheep and the wool defined, the next step in the process, as I understand it, is shearing. Can you talk a little bit about that process and what the state of the wool is like when it right when it comes off the animal? Yeah, sure. So shearing is done. Um, shearing is done once a year um, in these stations, and it's 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 a huge process uh, because of the the nature of merino sheep. They really do roam wild and free down in the the southern Alps of New Zealand. So I can use an example. I've been to one of the stations called Mount Nicholas, which is just over a um, hundred thousand 
acres and they've got 29,000 head of merino um, on these stations so before they even start the shearing process these guys have to go out to the far edge of the station and what uh, what uh, muster the sheep in with the help of dogs and and usually on horseback or foot because the environment really is inhospitable there's no way of doing it other than uh, other than the the old school ways of doing it they then muster the sheep down to the lowland area where these um, shearing sheds are and they usually bring in external uh, contracted crews of shearers whose sole job is to travel from place to place uh, during shearing time and spend however many weeks is required to um, to shear the sheep and get the wool. So when they go in and uh, shear the sheep, it's uh, done by hand with um, electric clippers similar to to um, a hair clipper that you and I might shave our beard or 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 head with, and that wool is um, taken off the sheep, leaving um, a very short, fine uh, layer of wool um, on the animal. The wool is then collected um, off the floor of the wool shed uh, by rouseabouts who work with uh, the shearing crew and they throw that onto um, onto a large table where they can remove um, a lot of the dirty matter that's, that's in the wool and um, they can just make sure the fleece is fully intact. Um, the wool is then, um, during the the shearing time, there the will be a wool classer uh, present um, in the wool shed. Now, the wool classer can judge everything we talked about previously, the micron, the length, the strength, the flaws, um, and they are extremely accurate with with how they class this down to the micron, and they um, are then in a position to sort it to see which clip that wool actually goes in so if it's 18 and a half micron for example uh, with icebreakers clip that will go into one specific area if it doesn't meet icebreakers um, clip or our requirements for that season it will go to a, another specific area within the wool shed and when it comes off uh, the animal the wool itself is um, can still be quite dirty they're living in the outdoor environment um, and it's extremely greasy through the the natural oils that are in the wool called uh, called lanolin and uh, these are then bailed up into into large bales um, which are then ready for um, export out of New Zealand so this classer you talked about does this do these classifications get made on like a per animal basis or is this like a per herd? The whole herd gets classed in the same manner? Now, the fleece can be classed extremely quickly uh, by the wool classer, generally because of the way uh, and the science that's involved with the breeding of these animals. The flocks will be bred to within a certain micron of wool, uh, but it's not always fully accurate. So usually each individual fleece is being classed as it as it comes off the animal. Then um, there's further tests that take place before it's uh, before the, the wool is there for export to make sure that it's uh, within the parameters of the micron uh, that is required or the micron that's in uh, the various contracts that this grower may have. Okay. And what, uh, what time of year does, does the shearing occur in? Yeah, so shearing usually takes place um, from around October, uh, with November and December being uh, tends to be the, the the busier of the months with with the shearing. But obviously, there's a huge number of sheep uh, to get through, and um, shearing is almost becoming a lost trade. So. Uh, there's there's less and less um, really skilled crews out there now, so um, so I think that's one of the challenges the industry may face moving forward. Yeah, and so for all of our um, North American listeners who might not be familiar, what season is October through December down in, oh. in New Zealand? <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's it's spring moving into summer. So so once the wool shear, it's in its it's in its raw state, kind of this greasy fleece as as you described it. At, at this point, like before it's processed or spun into yarns, what sort of physical properties are we looking at? Like tensile strength, antimicrobial, elasticity, softness, and how sort of those properties of the raw fiber compare to those of other fibers like cotton, hemp, or synthetics? Yeah, so when you've got wool it's, it, itself, what gives uh, merino garments uh, the real technical features are the fiber itself. And those, fi uh, those uh, raw fibers, those properties that we talk about are inherent 
in that fiber, albeit in its raw form before it goes through the various processes to put it into yarn, the garment, etc. So there's a natural crimp um, in the wool fiber, which really helps its resilience. The merino fiber itself is of a, an alpha helix construction, which really helps with the stretch and the recovery of the fiber, giving the, the, the wool fiber and the wool garments their, their resilience. So with the, the the natural structure of the merino fiber, it can stretch up to 30 times its own length without breaking. And you can stretch it up to 20 times its own length and it will still fully recover to its original form. Now, when you compare that uh, to nylons and polyester, they can usually go up to um, 10 times uh, its own stretch before breaking. Obviously, there's synthetic uh, materials out there that will do that, such as spandex and, and lycra, but merino wool fiber really do that um, really do that naturally uh, the fiber itself um the the benefits that we get from merino wool the sheep also gets from merino wool as well so in terms of temperature regulation um in terms of uv protection a lot of the things that that the sheep rely on the fleece for that's how we're using it in the outdoor or or the technical environment and it all comes down uh, to the fleece and the fiber itself when it comes to actual tensile strength of the of the individual fibers how does wool compare to some of these other natural and synthetic fibers so wool does have a, a high tensile strength in its dry format. I haven't got the exact comparisons for you. Uh, the tensile strength does drop off considerably, though, when uh, when the wool fiber uh, when the wool fiber gets wet. Uh, the real benefit, like I said, comes from the stretch and recovery of uh, of these fibers. So, after we have the the, the sheep are shorn, right? Is yep. that is that the right word? Shorn. <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right, yeah, it sounds it's sound, it's really fun to say the sheep are shorn and uh the wool's in its raw state. What sort of processing steps need to happen to that raw wool before it's made into a fabric? Before it's made into a fabric, the first uh process is is putting um what we call the raw wool into wool tops. Now this involves um washing the greasy wool uh, to try and remove as, as much of the lanolin as possible, remove uh, the dark matter and uh, the, the vegetative matter from uh, the wool as well. So it goes through a process of uh, carding and combing to do this after the, wa after the washing. So superwash involves going through a series of um, really baths, as it were, to really clean uh, the fiber and remove uh, the, the greasiness and the matter from the wool. It's then carded and combed to put it into a form that makes it very, very easy to, to spin into the yarn. So once those wools have been put into, once the wool has been put into what we call um, wool tops, it's then um, spun into wool yarns, depending on uh, the type of yarn that we want and the various garments uh, that we're making. It's either 100% merino wool yarn, it could be put into one of our coarse spun yarns, or even one of our um, blends with tensile. So once that's spun into a yarn, once we have those yarns in place, that's where uh, those yarns will go to the, the fabric mills and actually be transformed into to the fabric that, that the final garments are made out of. Now, with some of our newer technologies that are coming through, uh, like our seamless nature knit, uh, the yarn itself is, is spun into the garment uh, straight away, similar to as you would do with a, with a sock construction process. So it's eliminating that need uh, to put it into rolls of fabric and then cut the fabric from there. So you you did briefly mention um, blending. The process of blending different materials into a yarn always seems like a bit of a voodoo to me. Can you talk a bit about the reasoning behind blending other fibers with wool, sort of what properties you're shooting to optimize, and the process by which that blending happens? Yeah, sure. So it really depends on the blend that we're that we're going to run, and I, I can use a couple of specific examples um, if that will if that will help. So for uh, the first one will be our blending with um, with nylon and our coarse spun fabric. Due to the due to the really lightweight, fine nature of wool, durability um, is one of our biggest challenges. Um, so. 
one of the innovations we use for this is is core spun. Um, the core spun fabric really has a nylon core to it, which is super, super fine. To put it into context, um, it's four micron compared to the Ooh. wool's 18.5 micron, so extremely fine. And then during uh, the yarn spinning process, the, the merino wool itself is wrapped around uh, the outside core of this nylon filament to give added durability and, and strength to the fabric. Now, the reason why we did this was um, to, to really make sure our garments had longevity uh, behind them. So through adding uh, the nylon filament, we increased um, our durability by around 36%, um, which, um, like I say, when you're really investing in a good technical piece you you want it to last and by blending it um uh, with with the by using the core spun fabric it's it's really allowed us to to do that now we're looking at other ways that we can potentially get that strength and uh you can do that through higher twist yarns etc and as technology um increase in both spinning and uh the way we put our yarns together i think we'll be able to get to a point where we can still be 100 percent natural uh, without the use of that, uh, without the use of that nylon filament, but ultimately, where we do blend, we just look to increase the inherent performance of the of the merino fabric. Now, because merino is always next to skin during that process, you still keep um, all the benefits of merino: the the odor suppression, uh, the moisture management, uh, the thermoregulation. Um, none of that is. It, is, is changed uh, and the, the mix of, to give you an idea of the mix, it's still 87% merino in the finished fabric with the 13% nylon core. Um, another blend that we use is with uh, Tensil or Lyocell to give it uh, its generic name. Now, tensile um, is derived from um, eucalyptus trees and it takes the, the eucalyptus tree down to a, a pulp um, and from that pulp, uh, we extrude uh, fibers. Uh, once it's uh, gone through uh, the closed loop process, we get cellulose fibers. Now, there's a couple of different ways uh, you can blend merino and tensile. Uh, one um, of the most common that we use is actually blending those merino and tensile fibers together before we spin those out into a yarn. So the yarn itself um, is made up of both merino fibers and tensile fibers together. Another way is to spin a separate merino yarn and a separate tensile yarn and then blend those um, in the, the knitting process. Now, when it came to, to the use of tensile, the reason why we chose uh, tensile fabric um, is really for it uh, enhances the properties of merino in hot climates. So it's extremely good uh, wicking uh, properties and extremely good breathability properties, but it also uh, has uh, the odor suppression properties that merino has, so it doesn't take away uh, from any of the, the properties of the merino wool. And then from um, a drape and feel perspective, uh, the, the drape of the tensile fabric can hang slightly uh, differently to the merino fabric, so some, for some more uh, fashionable applications, um, it's, it's extremely beneficial to use. Uh, the tensile fibers. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting as well to see what's coming down the pipeline and, and how they're using the different uh, fabrics because the way we've gone with some of our high performance pieces is, you know, in those areas where you inherently let out more heat under the arms, uh, the center of the back, uh, etc. That's where we'll use a, a blended um, tensile fabric and then where we need to keep the warmth, we'll start to use a merino fabric there and we're, we're also using vented fabrics as well to really enhance uh, those prop uh, the the cooling properties of the wool where you need them where you need them most and there's a lot of thought that goes into that design process not just for icebreaker but uh, but across the board. Yeah, environmental concerns are getting more and more attention when it comes to textiles, and I think rightfully so. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the primary environmental benefits and drawbacks to wool? and how wool might compare to some other fibers uh, when it comes to those, to those environmental issues? Yeah, sure. Um, I think the, the, the biggest one to, to talk to kind of links in with 
one of the uh, properties that I've already mentioned. Now, uh, for those people who are really into the outdoors, the odor suppression element of, of icebreaker uh, was, was a benefit. You know, these guys are going for multiple day hikes and taking one or two garments with them. So having something that suppresses odor uh, in, in a natural way is extremely beneficial. Now, one of the key benefits of that for an environmental impact for us is far less washing of your garment. Now, like you said, the consumer is, is really aware and is making conscious choices, particularly around things like single-use plastic. Um, I go to the juice bar and I feel guilty when I haven't bought my metal straw with me <laughs> because everyone else is everyone else has got their metal straw. So you know, I don't take one and I end up with it all around my mouth. But single-use plastic bags, single-use bottles, um, nobody's really made or they're starting to make that link to clothing, but nobody's really made that link yet. So with an average wash of clothes with synthetic fibers, up to 700,000 microplastics are released with each wash. And these microplastics are making their way to the ocean and um, into the food chain. Now, one of the benefits of, of wool and tensile and, and the, the natural fibers that, that we use is these microplastics aren't, aren't being produced. Um, wool itself also fully biodegrades. So if you look after your icebreaker base layer, it will last you years. But if you were to bury it underground um, in a moist environment, it will biodegrade within months. You know, studies that, that, that we've done, uh, after two months, garments lose up to 36% of their mass. And then after nine months, between 76 and 99% of their mass has gone just through the biodegradation process. So fast fashion and, and, and fashion overall is, is really polluting to the environment. And it, uh, ultimately ends up in in landfall so by choosing merino wool um, and other natural fibers it, it's helping to reduce uh, that that process when it comes to things like land and water use how how is you know raising the animal how does that infect affect the land in comparison to like you know how the agricultural process of growing cotton for for example yeah, cotton's a really intensive process that um, does, in, in many cases, um, use a lot of water and, uh, and a lot of pesticides. The natural environment for uh, the merino sheep is in the high alpine area, and it can survive and, and really thrive and flourish in those environments, and it has done for an extremely long period of time. So the, the, imp the impact on the environment compared to a fiber like cotton is, is minimal. With the growers that, that we work with, our growers are audited um, a minimum of, of once every three years. Last year alone, 60 of our growers were, were audited. And they're audited fully on all animal welfare standards, but, but they're also audited on their land management plans on how they manage biodiversity, how they manage their, their waterways, how they manage um, their animal health and, and, and chemical usage on uh, the properties that they work on and really how to minimize uh, the impact of, um, of all of those. So um, the, the property is, is being farmed, but it's being farmed in a way that's sustainable uh, for the long-term future of, of that land. Many of these stations that we see are multi-generational. They'll be uh, third generation, sometimes fourth generation farmers in there, and they don't see themselves as, as owning that station. They just see themselves as, as a guardian for the land that, that they're using with the animals animals that they have on it. Um, the example I gave before of, of Mount Nicholas Station, 100,000 acres, 29,000 head of sheep, it's almost, um, you know, uh, three sheep per acre. So it's a really low intensity farming to, to, to breed merino sheep for their wool. So the environmental impact is, is at a minimum. So I know we talked a little bit earlier about the definition of merino versus something else and that it's a, it, you described as a species of sheep. I guess I have a few follow-ups to that. Um, one, I, I know that there are people raising merino sheep in other areas of the world outside of New Zealand, and there's a bit of controversy into this and actually calling that merino. 
But also I want to talk a little bit about what makes a the wool from a merino sheep superior to the wool of other other breeds of sheep. Yeah, so the 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 main defining characteristic is is really the the micron that I talked about before and how fine that the the wool on the sheep is. So we talked around 18 0.5 micron our underwear would be closer to 17 say a fine italian suit for example can go down to around 14 micron but the, the the sheep have to be kept under really strict conditions and merino sheep have to be kept under really strict uh, conditions now um, a regular, say, meat-producing sheep, the micron of the wool can um, can go up into the 30s, 40s. Uh, 50. So it really is a coarse wool. And what I'll say there is, do you remember when you were younger and you used to get that sweat sweater from your nan who would make <laughs> knit you the, the, the sweater that was the itchiest thing that, that you've ever put on? The reason why that was so itchy and so heavy was because it would be from a, a very coarse micron um, of wool, so a very high micron wool. With the, the finest of the, the merino fiber, what it does, it just bends extremely well against the skin and doesn't irritate the skin to the same effect. The longer the fibers you use then to spin into the yarn, so again, the fiber length is very important. It means there's less short fibers um, in the merino wool that will then come to the surface and it will ultimately uh, less pilling for, for want of a better word. But the main difference between the, the merino sheep and say a standard meat producing sheep is um, is the micron of the wool. Now many farmers are using crossbreeds as well and there's various reasons why you would crossbreed a merino sheep um, with um, another breed. One of them is to increase the number of lambs that you get. So your lambing percentage in merino is is relatively low. Um, they will tend to only have one lamb, some may have two. Whereas if you crossbreed um, that sheep with another breed of sheep, you can increase your lambing percentage and the micron of your wool will only increase, uh, will will increase on the back of that, but but still be within acceptable levels. But it still won't have the the performance benefits of uh, of a merino micron fiber. Okay. Um, so there are lots of animals that produce wool. Why don't we see more wool from like alpacas or yaks or goats or like vicuña or something along those lines? Why why can't I get a vicuña base layer? I think it's. Uh, in, in all, and, and I'm seeing this more and more as well. I think uh, yak fur was worn at um, out, outdoor retailer recently when when I was there, and I think it's down to supply and the commercialization um, of the industry. I don't know enough about um, the other the other fibers to talk to the the benefits of those. But uh, merino farming has been around for an extremely long time, and um, uh, the commercialization of merino in general has allowed us to get to a point where we can produce the the quantities of wool that are required for the industry. Now, outdoor and active are, are relatively new members to this supply chain. It's been supplied for suits for some time. Now, some of the other fibers you've mentioned, they've no doubt got performance benefits, but they probably haven't reached the same commercialization in terms of uh, getting access to the fiber itself and the raw fiber itself. And that's probably um, inhibiting the volumes it can get to. Makes sense. So apart from being spun and used in knit and woven fabrics, kind of like we've talked about, we're seeing wool being used in some other applications as well, mainly insulation recently. Um, how how does wool perform as an insulation layer? And also, are, are there other areas you're seeing wool being used in now? Yeah, so wool in, in insulation, depending on the, the country that you're from, has, has been around for a, for a long time. And then it was replaced with um, synthetic man-made uh, options. It's only now that we're coming back to it and seeing it as a, as a, greener, uh, as a greener solution. The, the, the properties have uh, always been there. And I think years ago, they, they were in the communities that um, produced wool for a long time, Australia, New Zealand, some areas of the UK, wool insulation was used a lot. Um, the 
uh, insulation that, that we talk to in terms of how we use merino wool um, as an insulator, uh, it, it comes down to the thermoregulation properties of wool. So it's not just being used as, a, as an insulator. It's around keeping your body at a constant temperature. And that's really where one of the benefits of merino wool comes in. Yeah, it'll keep you you're, you're warm when you're cold, but it will also help keep you cool as, as you start to heat up and, and exercise as you go through rigorous physical activity. And that's one of the, the properties that, that really sets it aside. I think some of the other applications that, that we've seen wool being used for, I think more recently, you're seeing a lot more being used even in in footwear, um, again being blended with with other natural fibres in in footwear. There's a couple of companies um, that are doing that e extremely well, and then taking uh, the properties of wool, like um, the the odour suppression properties, and and making insoles to shoes um, out of wool to really capitalise on those um, odour suppression properties. There, we've seen studies that have shown merino wool can uh, be extremely beneficial for uh, patients who've got uh, severe eczema. So there's studies being done to see uh, the benefits that it can have there. A lot of infant and baby applications as, as well. Uh, merino blankets, merino cot liners, um, looking at the, at the benefits that merino wool can be, can be used for, uh, for for applications outside of uh, technical apparel. So recycling is another hot button issue. What does what does wool recycling look like right now? I can talk to how Icebreaker have tended to do wool recycling within our own supply chain uh, process. So, for example, we've um, we launched Merino Loft, which is um, kind of a, a, a wool fill. Uh, jacket as an uh, alternative to Prima Loft or or down, and we took the offcuts from our base layer fabric and took those offcuts back to the fiber and used those as a portion of the wool that we put into the fill within uh, the merino loft bats that we use for the insulation within the jackets. Like I said, uh, wool is uh, a biodegradable. Uh, substance. So if it does get into the supply chain, uh, sorry, into the environment or landfill, it, it won't pollute that landfill. So in terms of if a garment reaches the end of its life cycle process, a uh, life cycle, which would be an extremely, say, hold t-shirt after uh, 10 years of wearing, um, bury it in your garden and uh, the biodegradation will uh, will take its course and uh, the impact on the environment uh, will be less than, say, a synthetic garment. So I'm just going to start a, a garment graveyard in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad idea. I've, I've, I've thought of that and uh, see, see how they go. Unfortunately, I'm in an apartment now, so we don't have that much space for me to run my science experiments. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think my neighbors would definitely freak out a little bit if they saw me burying clothes in my backyard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially if you do it in the middle of the night, I'd recommend that as a daytime task. Yeah, good idea, good idea. <laughs> uh, so we've talked a lot about the antimicrobial odor properties of wool. Um, can you talk a little bit about the sort of the technical aspects of why the wool fiber? tends to be be naturally odor resistant yeah sure there's lots of different um theories behind this and um you know it's it's evolved um over time as to to why it's inherently odor resistant the the main theory now is the 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 reason why we get odor is due to um, a byproduct of the, the bacteria that will really feed um, off your sweat. So due to the structure of the wool, what will happen is a lot of these um, odor molecules from the acid of the bacteria will be absorbed into the merino fiber and really effectively trap that odor in there. Now, the, the process of that is called uh, glass transition um 
so what happens is those odor molecules become trapped. Then when your garment is laundered from there, um, due to the, the difference with the water and the air, those molecules will be released through that washing process and that glass transition process can actually start um, again. So um, there was different theories that have existed in the past to do with the scales of the fiber and the, the bacteria not being able to, to stick to those ultra-fine scales and uh, the microscopic ridges that exist within the wool fiber. But the most recent uh, train of thought um, is really the merino fiber um, absorbing uh, those odor molecules as well and then releasing those uh, once they are laundered. Uh, but the mechanics itself, th there's still a lot of work being done on it and it's not really fully understood yeah interesting um it's all there's you know there's another really interesting part of the wool fiber in that it's you know the outer the outer area of the wool fiber based on the structure whatever is is tends to be rather hydrophobic but wool also can absorb tons of water you know the core of the fibers tend to be rather hydrophilic can you talk a little bit about how that plays into the performance of the wool fiber as well yeah, so that really helps with uh, with the moisture management of, of wool and uh, again links back to that thermoregulation. So um, the hydrophilic element the, of the wool, it can hold up to 35% of its own weight in moisture without actually feeling wet. Um, so it actually works with your body's natural process of, of sweating and the evaporation process of actually helping to, to keep your body cool. Um, now, there's been studies done in and around this to say, okay, that's great, but what are the benefits for me? So by wearing merino uh, wool and due to uh, the structure of the fiber and its moisture management benefits, Wearing merino wool during um, exercise actually reduces your time to the onset of sweating compared to other fibers. Um, it can also, it's also been shown um, in studies to uh, maintain a more stable core body temperature due to its moisture management, um, moisture management properties. Just really working with your body's own cooling process um, of evaporation. Now on the flip side of that, um, in terms of um, the thermoregulation and, and helping keep warm, um, all all fibers um, naturally go through a process called heat of sorption, uh, but it's more inherent in merino wool uh, than than any other um, than other fibers that are out there. So this is the process of um, absorbing and releasing that moisture actually. Um, uh, can also generate a small bit of heat uh, and that helps in cold wet environments to keep your body warmer so for the um for the non-chemical engineers out there uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you expand a little bit about what these what these different these like this for instance heat of absorption is a chemical process so it's called heat of sorption um, and this is really the process of absorption and desorption which is governed by the humidity of the surrounding environment and how that moisture moves um, how that moisture content moves within the fiber so the higher the humidity uh, on the outside, the greater the absorption um, of water. And that's uh, the reason that the merino gives off heat when it absorbs water actually relates to the vapor condensing itself within the fiber and then releasing its latent heat as condensation. Right. So the water is in a lower energy state in its liquid form is the idea. So as it makes that phase transition gas to liquid it releases this heat absorption is, is yeah. that more or less correct yeah so we see a lot more knit wool fabrics than we do woven wool fabrics can you talk a little bit to that yeah the the reason of, of knitting is we do both we do a knit fabric and we do um, a woven fabric the nature of um, weaving the fabric actually reduces, you don't get as much stretch 
uh, dimensional stretch with a woven fabric as you do with a with a knitted fabric. So it's more to do with uh, the final use um, of the product and where uh, the final use of the fiber and um, how you want that fiber to be to be used. We talked about resilience and stretch and recovery of um, of the merino fiber before, and you inherently get the best benefit out of the merino fiber for for technical purposes when you knit rather than when you weave that fabric. Where we do use wovens uh, tends to be in more of our, um, say, woven shirts and things along those lines, which uh, are more casual apparel rather than technical apparel. So one of the things that I think is really cool about the Icebreaker brand is your own internal transparency initiative. For those of you listening who aren't aware Every year, Icebreaker puts out just a huge book documenting basically supply chains and all sorts of things about their brand um, in an effort for transparency. Uh, Can you talk a a little bit about that and how difficult or easy maybe that has been to integrate into the business? Yeah, um, it's something that that we'd always done. So when I say that, we didn't have the transparency report but we were always doing these business practices, but all that information wasn't in one place and the the knowledge was owned by different people. So what we really wanted to do with the transparency report is look at what we were doing and, and looking at how we could improve things uh, moving forward. So what it does, it really details our, our business from, from start to finish and covers a lot of the things that we've, that we've talked about today through our relationships with the growers, uh, the standards that we hold our growers to, where the wool comes from, and then more importantly, really maps out um, our supply chain and and what happens to uh, the wool after there. Now, as part of the the transparency report and our commitment to to ongoing improvement, we list every single uh, partner that we deal with, from the processing of the tops through to the knitting of the yarns. Um, uh, through to fabric and and garment production, and each one of those partners um, is audited on an annual basis to ensure that the practices of both waste management and the ethical practices uh, that that they go through, human rights, uh, wages, uh, etc., are all to within icebreaker standards and and well above uh, the industry standards. Now, it's not saying that that we're perfect and we're, we're doing every, everything well, we're, we're not, but it really highlights areas that we can prove. And then in each transparency report, we list what we're committing to, to, to improve uh, what we're doing uh, moving forward. One of the key things that, that came out of the, the first transparency report was um, being a, a company that was founded in Merino, um, 84% of uh, the fibers and, uh, and that we currently use are from a natural source. So one of the things uh, that we've committed to going forward is um, how do we increase that percentage and really have have the goal to um, eliminate synthetic uh, fabrics and, and fibers from our clothing range. Now that's a lofty goal because it means finding a natural replacement for lycra, uh, nylons, uh, polyesters, etc. But it's also about making conscious choices and how we develop our range moving forward and, and where we really focus our business. Well, it's it's really cool to see. I remember the first time I saw I saw one of your transparency reports, and I was just blown away. I think it's really it's important to have that communication and have that accountability to push things forward in the direction that they're going to go. And it's cool to see you guys kind of leading the way. With within Icebreaker, me myself, there's there's a lot of reasons why you join a company. There's there's other reasons why you why you stick around, and you know just the commitment that we're making with the with the transparency um, side of the business really really does uh, make a difference, and it, it allows you to go to work every day with a purpose, which is which is key. Okay, last question. What are some of the most common misconceptions about wool that you see? <laughs> um, I think that, that there's a few and I can reel them off. One is um, 
wool doesn't work in summer. I think that's um, the largest misconception that we we probably see in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I'm from the UK originally, and uh, I lived in Australia in total for, for, for six years. And I used to go running regularly in, in 30 degree, 35 degree. You're going to have to that's Celsius. I don't know the Fahrenheit. I'm, hot, I'm, hot is I'm what sorry. it is. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's hot in in merino and in in and in merino tensile. So that's one of the biggest misconceptions that we see that it's a fabric that only has um, benefits in winter. It's one of the best summer fabrics um, you'll wear, and um, I own very few alternative uh, fabric t-shirts now another one is we've talked about this that it's traditionally itchy and uh, it won't feel silky soft uh, next to skin now there's a few people who will be um, allergic to the natural oils within the wool that you can't wash out the lanolin that tends to be more a case than being allergic to 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 the wool itself it's not itchy at all if you've never um touched or or worn a, a merino uh, fine woolen t-shirt or base layer get out there and do it if there's nothing better uh, next to skin it, it it really is uh, silky soft um, and they're probably the two biggest misconceptions that that, that we've got within within the industry I, I think that's fair I, I I see this I see the same sort of misconceptions come through come through blister as well and though I, I I'm not sure I would say that wool is or merino fine merino will can be the absolute softest it is freaking amazing and um especially some of the products that i have from you guys are are some of my favorite wool pieces definitely so i would echo if you haven't tried out wool do it and with the blending of other fibers like tensile it just um really uh accentuates some of those benefits particularly in summer and uh definitely with the hand feel that you that you talk to yeah, certainly. Well, thank you so much for talking. I know I learned a lot and I hope that our listeners have learned a lot as well. Maybe uh, maybe I'll see you next time I'm shorn some sheep <laughs> down in the South <laughs> Island. <laughs> no, th- thank you very much, Sam. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you, yourself and your listeners. Have a good rest of your day, Josh. That's it for this episode of Gear 30. Thanks to Josh for the conversation, Luke Alley for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. If you're interested in hearing part one of this mini-series on fibers, check out episode 57, where we dive into the world of synthetic fibers. Also, if you're enjoying these Gear 30 episodes, please spread the word to your gearhead friends. Be safe out there, and we'll talk to you again next week.